0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: You heard about this yesterday. A lawsuit has been filed by a Mississauga man against the city due to a fall he suffered at Albion Falls back in 2016. Of course, uh, you might remember the last 10 years we've been promoting uh, Hamilton as the city of waterfalls, uh, certainly unprepared for the mass uh, amount of people that showed up and, and started to view these and continues to grow every year. And is very much an issue for the people that... Uh, are in and around these uh areas uh and and how do we combat this lots of people have fallen uh lots of injuries some death as well you know at what point do we uh, do we either uh, i guess as Counselor jackson has said make some sort of viewing platform or just make these things off limits to everybody which you know sort of, sort of uh defeats the purpose of publicizing them in the first place all right. Uh, let's bring in uh, Farouz Gigi Boy. He's a personal injury lawyer, PJ uh, KJ Law Professional Corporation, and is with us now. Faroz, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm a big fan of your uh, show. Well, thank and you very. much. T- well, well, thank today you very looks much. like you have a huge docket on your show. We actually. do, That's we do,
1: and we thank <laughs> you for taking the time to uh, to participate. So for is there a case here? It appears that uh, that Dixon was visiting Albion Falls uh, after midnight. Um, uh, They parked at the the lot. They uh, apparently went up the stairs. That's where there were issues. Uh, And then uh, Dixon headed down the steps covered with snow and ice uh they didn't apparently extend uh the the handrails didn't apparently extend the full length of the steps uh creating what they create uh, what what he says is a trap that is inherently dangerous um and and basically he got to the bottom turned around started to go back up slipped on the step and then fell down and then went down uh the embankment so does he have a case
2: here feros well you know it's a complex issue and I, and i think um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that this fellow suffered horrible injuries. I mean, he fell mm. hard and uh, is, is quite badly injured. Um, I, I think there's some misunderstanding when, when uh, people look at lawsuits and they think, oh, you know, uh, they can just bring a lawsuit and, you know, that, that's as, as easy as it gets. There's, uh, there's always competing arguments, and the city particularly has um, some defenses it can rely on. But, you know, when I look at this... What uh, would those
1: defenses be?
2: Well, first of all, I mean, the, you, when you look at this case from the point of view of Mr. Dixon, right, uh, he's turning up to a, a, a city-created set of steps. People are allowed to go there. Uh, the handrails sounded like they were defective. The the lighting sounded like it was defective. And it was February, so there's that whole thing, you know, should the city have closed it, that they've left it open the reasonableness of whether they've attempted to clear it or, or warn people. These are all things that Mr. Dixon's looking at and saying, look, this was a trap, because I went to where I was told to go, went on something that was created for me to go on, and yet it wasn't maintained. From the city's perspective, though, you're looking at a young fellow who goes in the middle of the night on a February. I don't know what the weather was like that day, but uh, if it had just snowed, if the snow had been there for weeks, uh, if, if there's been, again, the reasonableness of trying to maintain the steps. And what actually I'm not aware of uh, is whether it's marked as a recreational trail or not, because if it is, it changes the standard of care.
1: Uh, how does that change the standard of care?
2: Well, well under the legislation, uh, something marked as, a, as a, um, a recreational trail, the duty of care changes because the person going onto a recreational trail is, is uh, deemed to have assumed risk so then you've got to look at whether there was a reckless disregard hmm. uh, for, for the safety of people using it. So for, it does modify things
1: quite a bit. For O's, what about the fact that this happened around midnight?
2: So we have a principle in law called contributory negligence. So, and that looks at my activities, if I'm suing you, to see, it, look, did I do something that people would recognize as being uh, culpable in some way for the injury that occurred? And and so if you're going there in the middle of the night on a February, there's poor lighting. Uh, you know these are things you can see. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there is there is an element of that. If if it was let's say it was, you know I'm just introducing facts now. But if it's like pouring rain and it's you know about freezing, you're you're assuming some risk. Um, you know your own your own activity to bring there. If you're drinking, if you're doing drugs, like they're different. And I'm not saying Mr. Dixon was right, but th- there's just things that you know, uh, can, can limit how much somebody can claim because they themselves are somewhat responsible.
1: Uh, initially, the city had said that there wasn't any fencing required. Then, of course, once all of these rope rescues started, uh, they started, uh, you know, putting up fences and warning signs and such. Does that add to this, the fact that they've reacted afterwards?
2: You know, that's a really interesting question because I, I think often we as lawyers get into arguments about whether after-the-fact actions – speak to the negligence of the time Hmm. so for sure like if or is it just
1: or is it just preventive
2: medicine preventive maintenance you know and i think you know again this is this is going to end up being for the judge to to finally decide but um you know uh, from mr dixon's point of view he would i would if i was representing him i would absolutely be saying you've now recognized the deficiency of what you had um where the city's just going to be saying no we've now got you know situation we're trying to. uh, make changes to how people can view the waterfalls. And, uh, according not, to a uh, weather archive, it was below
1: freezing that night. There had been light snow mixed precipitation leading up to midnight. Does that play a factor? Yeah, that will f- certainly. Because
2: then you start looking at the reasonableness of the activity and keeping the, the, the stairs clean, like just like your own front, right? I mean, if, if I'm coming up to your house and it, is, uh, it had just snowed or it had just rained, and I slip and fall. I have um, you have a different uh, defense than if it had snowed and rained 12, 15 hours before and you just hadn't bothered getting out to, to salt and sand. And,
1: and so is it unrealistic to expect this uh, city facility or area to be ma- or maintained by the city uh, at midnight? You know, I mean, they're supposed to be out there shoveling it at midnight.
2: Well, it depends what the city wants people to use. I mean, there's no restriction on access, and and we are, and, and, you know, this kind of goes to something, echoing something you mentioned uh, in the intro. You were saying the the city has advertised itself as a city of Waterfall. People have responded to that call Mm -hmm. and have come to check it out. I mean, you know, it's beautiful at night. I mean, when I walk my dog, it's absolutely beautiful at night sometimes. So. You know, it, 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 it will come down to the specific facts of that night and uh, what various people were doing. And I think it will be interesting to see what the city had planned for um, um, ensuring proper maintenance. Um, um, many at all times of the day. Many public parks will say things
1: like closed at dusk, this sort of thing. Uh, does that play I don't know if that's the case here. I have heard certainly nothing of those signs being uh, erected there. Uh, does th- Does that add a different element to this if something like that is posted?
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. It goes you know two ways. I mean I think it there's an argument to be made. it would come under the risks willingly assumed under the legislation. But also, it goes to, you know, contributory negligence and these sorts of concepts.
1: Uh, Do you think this will go to court or do you think this will be settled out of court?
2: Oh, I don't know. Um, You know what? I think for anybody involved in a lawsuit, uh, unless there's real matters of principle involved, a settlement always makes sense because there's a huge range of reasonable when you're dealing with a lawsuit because you have competing ideas and competing uh, issues. Uh, if you choose to put it into the hands of a judge to decide, now you've asked one person to make a decision. That's, that's a stranger to, to your situation. Um, that That's important. If there are, if there are points of principle, if, if you know Mr. Dixon is horribly injured, if, if he can't work and he's 22 years old and the city's not willing to compensate him for what is uh, something that is compensable, then, yeah, he should go to court. And from the city's perspective, if they think they've done everything they need to do, then, um, you know, the, the, then they have to, you know, weigh, weigh carefully whether they want a judge to rule on that or not.
1: Uh, does it, this initially it happened February 2016? Does it matter that time has passed?
2: Yeah. So there, there's going to be limitation periods, but I think um, they're okay.
1: So it's not too long in 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 filing. I mean, I guess you can you can initially say no, I'm not interested in that, and then once you oh. realize once you realize the extent of your injuries and the recovery period and 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 you know how long this is going to take, uh, and if in fact you can get back to work, uh, you're allowed to make that call later.
2: Oh, sorry, no, I, I see what you're saying. No, the so the municipality that has we have an obligation to notify a municipality. Um, of of a potential claim way early on. I had assumed, I mean, I don't know what the procedural history is of this claim, so I'm assuming Mm -hmm. everything is in order.
1: Uh, what does the city do moving forward? I mean, as you mentioned, as we talked about uh, at the in the opening, uh, I remember ten years ago the big drive was on to promote the city when we were looking for something to latch onto, uh, promoting the city as is the city of waterfalls. Uh, it was a, it was a huge deal. Uh, now, obviously, those efforts have paid off. What does the city do moving forward? I mean, especially with these uh, pending lawsuits.
2: Uh, at the end of the day, do they
1: have to react? They do, don't they?
2: well they have to react in a reasonable way so you know i and i think case law i mean there's nothing wrong with our our system in the sense that it helps to define relationships in society right so individuals coming to hamilton people living in hamilton going to view the falls they they have an expectation a reasonable expectation that you know things will be relatively safe it, it's not a standard of perfection right so you know i think uh, the city should react uh, in a way that's reasonable to make sure that we can continue to be a safe place for people to come and visit. Because if you get a reputation of people plummeting to their deaths, then it, you know it's going to defeat any kind of uh,
1: so is it the city's it attractive? Is it the city's responsibility to rope these off or fence them off and and say no, you can't go here. You can only view
2: from here. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I don't think they have to go that far. I think if they're going to have viewing platforms or stairs or these sorts of things and people have to turn their mind to their to you know how people are going to use them and whether to leave them open for different seasons or times of day I don't think we I mean I don't think it it, it helps anybody to go drastically and just you know cut off a reasonable access to these incredible sites in Hamilton
1: should they are? was the city obligated to uh, ensure safety before they started uh, you know, publicizing this and, and letting people roam free?
2: As a personal injury lawyer, I would certainly say so. Mm.
1: <laughs> there you go. So the city's got their work cut out for them. I mean, they've got to get some officials up there and, 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 and people like yourself and figure out where the liabilities are
2: you know i think that's absolutely uh... what people should be doing i mean the city's got a large responsibility and the law is somewhat protective of cities because you know with all the sidewalks and roads and rent trails and stairs i mean there's a huge liability uh... component uh, but that doesn't excuse the city if they're reckless right? uh...
1: are you okay by saying uh... you know as a city or or municipality uh, we suggest you don't go here uh, you're traveling at your own risk. Uh, there are risks involved. I mean, is there a sign that they can put up that says, you're doing this uh, on, on your own risk. You're, it's not up to us to uh, to rescue you or this, that or the other. You, you, you travel at your own peril. Does that excuse them from anything?
2: Well, I don't think they could ever say we're not going to rescue you. Yeah. I mean, uh, everybody pays taxes and, and those services are there. Uh, also I think there's obligations on on uh, uh professionals who provide emergency services. So I, d- I don't think that's really an option, but But is it, um, is it, it could could it
1: could a really good sign just get them off the liability aspect of this?
2: Not completely no. because there's this concept of reckless uh disregard for the presence of people, right? So what I mean by that is even if it's a recreational trail, even if they've posted signs, they still have to act uh, with, uh, they can't act in, a, in a, a reckless disregard to what's going on. So, if they know they've put up a sign and still there's school groups going by there, hmm. I mean, you know, they can't just say, oh, well, tough, right? Right. Uh, so, it, it all comes down to what's reasonable in the circumstance. And, you know, I would hope that professionals on both sides of this lawsuit being. You know, intelligent people will be able to fashion a concept of reasonableness and, and find some sort of settlement for Mr. Dixon and the city.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, but at the end of the day, if they can't, then the, a judge is going to define uh, one brick at a time what is a reasonable thing.
1: Feroz G.G. Boy has been with us, personal injury lawyer, PJKJ Law Professional Corporation. Feroz, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
2: Well, I right, thank you, and uh, take care. Have a good day. You're listening to The
1: Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This was fascinating uh, when it came across the desk today. Uh, In the fight against drunk uh, is the fight against drunk driving a losing one? Should drunk driving be fought by decriminalization? Uh, an op ed by a defense lawyer in the Toronto Sun suggested that decriminalization would see criminal charges abandoned. Is this a smart idea? Alberta has announced its intention to adopt the BC model and counterintuitively larger, uh, largely decriminalize impaired driving. Uh, basically, to, to break this down, the, ch- the changes would see criminal charges, criminal charges abandoned in most of the first time impaired driving cases. Drivers with no criminal record, no accident or injury or low breath alcohol readings would see themselves facing license suspension and administrative uh, penalties, but not a criminal conviction. Of course, criminal conviction can, inf- uh, can affect employment, can affect crossing borders, travel, all sorts of things. So uh, is this the answer? Is this the way to go? Uh, let's bring in Andrew Murray, CEO of MAD Canada and on the line now. Andrew, thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Oh, Thanks for the opportunity, Scott. So what are your thoughts on decriminalizing uh, drunk driving this way?
3: Well, we don't use the word decriminalization uh, when we talk about the—we call this discretionary options for police because decriminalization means you do it in every type of situation, and this is not the case. So British Columbia has had a system since 2010, and they offer the discretion to focus instead of on kind of punitive penalties to focus on immediate rehabilitation type of sanctions. And the impact of that since 2010, according to corner data, is there's been a 50% reduction in impaired driving fatalities. And mm. so that's very persuasive for us and the results of the BC program.
1: So for you guys, this is all about results. It's all about getting these people off the road.
3: Well, and we, we know because of... See, one of the things that happens in B.C. is your, your vehicle is impounded for 30 days right on the spot. Mm-hmm. And so word got around when the legislation got out there and said, wow, I just had my car. It was gone for 30 days. It cost me these many thousands of dollars to get it back. I had to do all these other things. And all of a sudden, people went, whoa, I'm not driving in, you know, when I've been drinking. And so the number of drinking drivers fell. The gas mm. fell. But interesting the the sales of alcohol and the hospitality um, situation stayed strong part of it was the hospitality came a partner in the process and offered rides to their customers and things like that so it was a system change a behavior change very effective.
1: You know, you bring up a very interesting point, Andrew. Uh, you know, you're, you're saying a, for BC, uh, you know, and using the world, you know, the word decriminalization really is not accurate at all. I agree with that. Um, but you're, you know, using the example of BC where they have an immediate 30-day suspension. I believe in Ontario, it's a seven-day suspension. So they're looking at the punishment at the front end, things that will greatly affect the person and and their habits, as opposed to putting them through a trial, giving them a criminal record and such?
3: Uh, absolutely. And, and you know, quite honestly, when people make the decision whether they're going to drive impaired, it's not thinking about a criminal record. It's simply on the process. Am I going to get caught tonight? Mm-hmm. And because the administrative sanctions take way less time than the judicial ones, the criminal code, they take about an hour and a half compared to four hours for a criminal charge. And so that means there's many more boots, many much more deterrence on the roads in BC
1: than there is in any other province. Are people surprised at Matt's reaction to this?
3: Well, as, as Matt always says, like you know, people perceive us as you know being you know tough on drunk drivers. Well, what we want to do is be smart and favor type of legislation or kind of anything that reduces the number of drinking drivers on the roadway. And this is just being smart about it. The numbers speak for itself. So why wouldn't we support something like this?
1: Hmm. Is this all about uh, clearing up clogged courts? Well,
3: again, you know, did that happen? Yes, it did. But was that a motivation for us? No. The motivation going in is we knew there was evidence that vehicle impoundment change behavior so if somebody got their uh, vehicle impounded at roadside they would think twice about doing that uh behavior and so we were driven on the fact is if we started impounding vehicles at roadside it would change driver behavior deaths would fall now are are there side benefits to government and and others yeah there was this huge cost savings Mm -hmm. it made the system much more streamlined there was less judges needed Um, But we would never advocate for those type of things because they're not what MAD's all about. Uh,
1: What do you say to those that say that this will make it okay or or, or take away that public stigma and will actually put more drunks on the road?
3: Well, in in fact, it's showing it's put less. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's just a commentary. It's somebody that doesn't understand what the objectives are here, what's happening in reality, I mean, the people to talk to are, you know, those lives we've saved, and the other people to talk to is the police. They love the system because it allows them to do a very effective way. Mind you, you know, if somebody's a repeat offender, hurt someone, caused property damage, has a high BAC, they're not eligible for this program. Yeah, this so, is
1: this is all about first offense, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, well, first offense within reason, because mm-hmm. you could have somebody four times the legal limit you know, that's a first offense, they're not taking that person administratively because right. that person, you know, is
1: is got real chronic problems. What about those that would say, I'm playing devil's advocate here, uh, what, what about those that would say that this uh, eliminates judge and jury and puts all the power into the police officer at the roadside?
3: Well, BC has taken a couple of steps to make sure that that doesn't happen. So there's Three things that happen. So as we just talked about, there's certain, there's only certain circumstances they can use this discretion. The second thing is they do is that before they impound somebody's vehicle for 30 days, which is quite severe, they have the person has to fail two roadside breathalyzers on two different machines. Mm-hmm. So if in question, they've gotten the second opportunity, um, you know to. You know, if their alcohol was on the way down or on the way up, whatever, at least two failed tasks have to occur. And then the third thing is they can provide independent evidence to an arbitrator in the system. So it's not judge, you know, trial and jury by the police. There are other aspects to it. Now, a defense lawyer would argue that that's not good enough. But, you know, the, the Supreme Court upheld the system.
1: Uh, with a thirty-day suspension in British Columbia that comes, uh, what is the w- at what point at what alcohol limit? What's the threshold there? Is it the same as Ontarian, Ontario's? So
3: yeah, sure. It's, so you fail the criminal limit; it's a thirty-day vehicle impoundment. But
1: what is the and limit? Is it the same limit that's in Ontario? Yeah, is it point zero eight?
3: Yeah, zero eight. Right. And then they have. Um, uh, a different penalty at zero five. So at zero five in Ontario, you get your license suspended for three days. Right. In British Columbia, they impound your vehicle for three days, as well as suspend your license. So basically, you can't drive while your license is suspended.
1: So they are really putting the punishment uh, up at the front end of all of this, as opposed to letting it go through the legal. And that's what works. System, yeah.
3: Yeah, and and you know you know from Matt's perspective we're hung up on what works yeah. not you know not the process
1: well that's great i mean good for you yeah. guys uh yeah. is that being said is this a hard sell for mad or is it as you said hey the numbers speak for themselves and what we're interested in is not putting people in jail but getting drunks off the road
3: well it it has been a hard sell between i mean It was a hard sell between 2010-2012 because it took a while to get the results and show that the death rate had fallen, you know, as I said, 50%. And we needed coroner data to prove it because that's the most reliable. And then between, you know, a lot of lawyers, defense lawyers who defend impaired drivers in B.C. were really upset. So they challenged the laws and they went all the way to the Supreme Court, and that took till 2016, late 2016. But that then opened the door for other provinces to consider this. And then recently, there was another Supreme Court decision on judicial process. Um, It was a Jordan case. And, you know, routine things like impaired driving need to be resolved in 18 months. And so now governments, are looking at, we can also, we can save lives, but we can also be more efficient and we can make our commitments that we have to do under the Jordan. So the emphasis of other provinces to pick this up is really sped up.
1: Uh, but yeah, will this make less work for defense lawyers? Is that why they're challenging this? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> hmm.
0: it's
3: bottom line, like, you know, there was, Lots of lawyers um, in British Columbia, their bread and butter was defending impaired
1: drivers, and and a lot of that
3: business um, dried up. And um, you know what? Again, that's not our concern.
1: Uh, Other jurisdictions doing this? Obviously, this is Alberta and B.C. at this point that are...
3: Well, not Alberta. Alberta's talking about it. They're talking about it, yeah. So some of the media reports coming out, Alberta, that they've passed, they haven't. They haven't even introduced legislation. So... Um, I think all provinces are looking at the system now, um, and I, the most conversations are coming out of Alberta and Saskatchewan.
1: Uh, how will the uh, legalization of recre- uh, recreational marijuana coming up this summer, how does that this affect the discussion?
3: I think the system would be superb to be a great deterrent against people that want to drive high. And so... Uh, we've learned a lot from alcohol we know these administrative uh, systems and um, you know we're going to have police uh, be given the tool of oral fluid testers at roadside so they serve as the same um, role you know for drugs as uh, roadside breathalyzer does so the potential there and i think uh you know like for example british columbia as they're looking at their provincial laws now as cannabis comes in, they will um, replicate their system they've had for alcohol
1: and
0: mm-hmm.
3: success for drugs.
1: So basically and, it's the same template for uh, drugging and driving as it is for drinking and driving.
3: They will do that there. So that, that's our hope too, that the cannabis issue is another reason why administratively, and one of the difficulties with cannabis, unlike alcohol, is its dissipation rate. So you need, once you've got somebody at roadside, that test has to be omitted because, you know, within two hours, somebody's rate of... Uh, you know, nanograms has fallen by 90%. So it's really key to serve as a deterrent to get that testing done quickly.
1: What about other jurisdictions? Uh, Alberta talking about it, B.C. uh, implemented this. Uh, Other jurisdictions in the United States that are following this model?
3: Oh, no. This is very much a Canadian model. Um, In the U.S., they have a one tier system. Um, you know, it's it's over 80, and that's it. They don't even have the, the Warren range that Canada has at zero 0.5. So, um, I mean, would the U.S. states be better served by this? Absolutely, but they just can't get their head around
1: it. So with the legalization of recreational marijuana coming in the summer, if we don't move to this system, will we see, obviously, an even more clogged court system?
3: well yeah sure um you know it it really depends and what we don't know is how the provinces are going to respond uh we've heard indications i mean saskatchewan and quebec are uh, saying it's going to be a zero tolerance policy but how are they going to do that it's one thing to say it it's another thing how you're going to implement it so we're watching very carefully and communicating with provincial governments here's a very fast, effective way to do this at roadside. Um, Plus also the federal government's, you know, legislative changes are in the Senate right now, and hopefully they get out of there pretty quickly, where they have different procedures for blood testing, per se levels, oral fluid testing, which will help as well. I mean, is the system going to be perfect come July 1st? Absolutely not. It'll take us a couple of years to get it right. We need all kinds of training for police officers and tools. So we're really up against the clock, but, you know, we're, we're ready to go. We just need, uh, that legislation federally to come out of the Senate so that, uh, provinces can start to plan.
1: Uh, did this create divisiveness within MAD? Uh, you know, the idea that, you know, to even give the BC model a chance?
3: No, in fact, um, you know, in 2010, when D.C. was considering this, we were asked by the Minister of Public Safety at the time, would we support him publicly in this initiative? And uh we had, a number of years ago, had adopted these type of principles because when we saw them in effect in Europe and some of the other places like Australia, they'd really driven the numbers down. So we were on board. We were just looking for that first province to have the gumption and initiative to go forward with it, and we're so glad BC did that.
1: So this something similar to this is being implemented in other parts of the world like Europe and such?
3: Yeah, Well, a lot of European models don't use the criminal courts. They use an administrative model, especially for first-time offenders, especially where, again, you're not causing harm to anybody else. And they've been doing it for decades, and it's been pretty successful.
1: When do you think, or, or is there any appetite for this in Ontario?
3: Um, I think there's more appetite today than there was a year ago. Um, and it's just a matter of you know, having those discussions. I mean, uh, the Attorney General gave, uh, of Ontario gave a statement today to say that we're looking at this. So, I mean, that's encouraging. It's the first time I've heard that they publicly said that uh, they're supportive in looking at these type
1: of sanctions. So, as we look at the BC model now, would you consider that a success, or is there more time, more study needed here?
3: Quite frankly, Scott, in the last 20 years, we have not seen this kind of uh, drop in fatalities, not only in North America, anywhere in the world. Wow.
1: So, yeah. How did we get this wrong at the beginning, then? Why didn't we do this at the beginning?
3: You know what it was in British Columbia? It was a minister who was a former police chief, so he knew all about impaired driving. Right, And you had a really gung-ho... Person as the superintendent of motor vehicles that had a vision to reduce. You had groups like ourselves and other victims uh, who were motivated for change, and they wanted to change the system. They w- they were just dissatisfied what was happening in British Columbia, and the police got behind it, and it was a game changer. And so. Um, sometimes that's what you need, especially the first time.
1: Andrew Murray has been with us. CEO of Mad Canada is the fight against drunk driving. Uh, should it be fought by? De- uh, I don't want to use that word. How? What word would we use instead of decriminalization?
0: Well,
3: I, I think that what, what we need to say is there should be some discretionary, uh, you know, uh, powers to police to use administrative law in certain circumstances. I mean, that's a, a mouthful, but it is really an accurate statement.
1: Andrew Murray, CEO of Mad Canada. Andrew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHL. You know, I've talked about this many times, Uh, something to me did not seem right with the Joshua Boyle case uh, from day one. It just, uh, I I don't understand why someone takes their pregnant wife backpacking into Afghanistan, into a dangerous part of the country. I don't understand um, why he would have been married to former, uh, or where he was formerly married to Omar Khadr's sister. I don't understand how he could have kids in captivity if in fact he was in such horrific I'm not convinced he isn't in some way something other than a hostage, a pure hostage in this case. Something to me just doesn't pass the smell test here. Uh, Then, of course, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, prior to Christmas, uh, a picture appears uh, off of the family's website, uh, I guess um, illustrating their uh, meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau in the PMO's office, which included uh, pictures with the family. This all happening just days before Ottawa police arrest Joshua Boyle on 15 criminal charges. So my question is, why would the Prime Minister be meeting with somebody who is under investigation in this way, or does he not know any more about Joshua Boyle or who the real Joshua Boyle is than any of the rest of Canada? Because I don't think we know anything about this guy. And whenever the Americans start asking questions, everybody just, oh, it's those Americans again. That's why he didn't want to fly to the United States rather than Canada. They offered to fly him home because there would be serious interrogation on the way or wherever he landed. So to me, something about this case has not seemed right from day one. And now we have our prime minister posing for pictures with this family. You have to ask if he knew of any of this was going on. And if he did, is that the right decision to be posing for pictures with them prior to an arrest for 15 criminal charges on 15 criminal charges? So uh, other than that, maybe he didn't know. Maybe the Prime Minister's office was not aware of all of this going on, even though the investigation was well underway. I don't get it. I, 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 and again, I, I still don't think we know the whole story behind Joshua Boyle. Let's bring in Christo Avelisse, Queen's University Labor and Political History Professor, and on the line now. Christo, thanks so much for taking the time today. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. So, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think the prime minister uh, was aware of what was going on at the time of this photo op?
4: Uh, I, I'm I, I don't know. I mean, if he if he was, it's a curious decision. I have to say. I mean, of course, you know, Mister Boyle is is innocent until proven guilty, and I know that there's certainly a lot of questions about all of this. I mean, I probably had questions as well, just kind of as an observer of the media, just seeing like you know, this is really it's an interesting case, but. Um, you know, I, I would think that if if this was if there was a potential PR nightmare, the prime minister would be very careful because, you know, for even the critics of Justin Trudeau can acknowledge that if he's good at one thing, he's really good at, at managing his own public image. Um, and it would seem like it would be a mistake to to to, to you know, take photos of the boy with the Boyle family if you know, there were all these potential questions uh, in the air, even before the charges now maybe it's maybe it is a case of the prime minister not knowing of course we have multiple layers of government and you know, the prime minister is a powerful man, but he's not uh, omnipotent. So he doesn't necessarily know everything that's happening. And that could be what's happened here.
1: But wouldn't the prime minister's office know? And wouldn't the prime minister's office say to him, hey, you know, there's uh, an arrest imminent or, or, or charges were even laid, I believe, or, or, or talking about them. Certainly the investigation was going on at the same time. Would the PMO's office not have, you know, pulled him aside and say, you know what, this probably isn't a good idea right now. We don't know the whole story here.
4: I mean, you know, that's something that 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 maybe should have happened. You, you're right in saying that, you know, when someone's going to not only meet with the prime minister, but but take photos with the prime minister, that you know there'd probably be a policy about access to him. Again, he's a very busy man. He's popular, more popular than any prime minister in 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 generations, really. So mm-hmm. he must have people who wants to meet him from all over the world. They probably do pros and cons about that. So you're right. It, it does from from the, the face of it, seemed like, you know, somewhere the ball was dropped here. Again, especially if, you know, the PMO was, 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 was informed of these investigations. You know, even if charges weren't formally announced, you'd think that may be a courtesy. But, you know, there could have been a ball dropped somewhere before the PMO. Uh, as well, I'm not sure.
1: As you said, innocent and proven guilty, but simply uh, saying no due to the lack of information, the lack of, again, we don't know who the real Joshua Boyle is at this point, it seems.
0: Well,
4: you know, that's that's a great point. Again, in, a, in our legal system, you know, no one should be assumed innocent until proven guilty, but the mm-hmm. Prime Minister, especially for photo ops, can say from a, from a, even just from a purely self-interested perspective, look, I don't know your motivations and I don't know your baggage, ergo, I'm not going to want to be in a picture with you, uh, you know, talking about, you know, uh, your struggles and whatnot, less that two, three weeks later um, it comes out that, you know, your story is falsified or you have a, a checkered past and it makes me look bad, especially, uh, and fairly or not, uh, one of the, you know, the, the especially on, on the right-leaning part of the political spectrum, Trudeau is seen as sympathetic to, to Muslim extremists. And that would be politically disadvantageous to him.
1: And you know, considering the, the savviness of the prime minister when it comes to media, whether it's social media, traditional media, what have you, I mean, as you mentioned, this guy—well, uh, I think only Trump does it more than this guy does. I mean, he he certainly has embraced this media. Uh, wouldn't that lead us to believe that he had no idea what was going on here?
4: I mean, that because would, if he that did, would, yeah. if he
1: did, even Prime Minister Trudeau, I don't think would have made this call.
4: No, I don't think so either. I mean, that's my inkling. Again, I mean... Neither we don't of us, know. I don't think, yeah, I think neither of us are, are in those spaces day yep. to day. We, we can have a general understanding of the process, perhaps, although even that we might not know. But you're right. It seems like, again, for a prime minister who's, who's very, you know, deliberate in, in having this image and who he associates with, um, be they famous or be they, uh, you know, some kind of representation of what Canada is yep. or wants to be, um, it seems like a curious choice given that. So I don't know if he didn't have all the information, or I don't know if he, if you know, there was a, a specific choice made. But it, it seems out of line with, say, you know, he would associate with, you know, actors and, and, and journalists and and, and and you know, free speech advocates from all over the world, um, you know, to try to make a, a case. This doesn't seem to fit, at least from what we know now.
1: It seems that everybody has been pretty quiet about the whole Boyle file. We really don't know what happened. We really don't know the reasoning for him going there. We really don't know uh, you know the reasoning for him giving birth to, to or, you know procreating while he's uh, in apparently these horrific conditions. Uh, we don't know why he married Omar Khadr's sister who you know we certainly know the history there. Um, you know, obviously Canadians really don't know much about this man, do we?
4: No, I wouldn't say so. I think it's part of the, the mystery here. And that's why, it, 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 just objectively, it's an interesting story, I think. Because you're right, it doesn't strike me as, as you know, what you would see as a traditional hostage, hostage narrative. And even beyond whether or not, like, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on the conditions of, of hostages in the Middle East, but you're right, it does seem... You know, rather odd that, you know, one would, you know, expand their family, you know, uh, a couple times, really. Uh, it, it does seem interesting, and I think this is why a lot of people had questions about him. Even in, even if taking aside conspiratorial things, um, that, you know, this guy is secretly a terrorist or what have you, but even more just in the, the sense that, look, like, we really want to know this guy's story. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be interesting, right? It's got to be one of the most interesting stories of 2017, even if everything he's saying is true, because it's mm. it's really good. It's, it's it's a movie-worthy story in that
1: sense. Absolutely, and I remember first hearing this, Christo, and thinking something doesn't seem right here. Did it?
4: Did it strike you that way? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it seemed different, and I don't know. And I don't want to just instantly assume yeah. that just because it's different, it doesn't seem right. But it, it it was curious again because of just how different it was and. And, yeah, just watching it on the news and, and then just hear more about it. And at first you think, oh, there was a Canadian hostage. And it's like, you know, that's happened before. So I'm like, okay, that's great. He, he and his family are safe. But, again, you hear the stories. Um, and, yeah, it does seem a little odd. It does. That's, that, was, that was definitely my first instinct. Uh, just seeing it on the on the tv hearing it on the radio
1: and there didn't seem to it didn't seem to appear that he wanted anything to do with anyone from the united states i remember when he was first released his father even making a comment and this was i think believe before he even returned to canada Um, saying, uh, you know, because initially he was going to, the U.S. was going to, because they were involved in this, I guess, in the intelligence side of it as well, um, you know, and and largely provided the intelligence from what I understand in order for this rescue to happen, yet he didn't want any part of the United States and his father even alluded to that and and I'm paraphrasing here, nor do I want to put words in his mouth, but basically said, oh no, he's not going to fly to the States and it was almost as if it was an anti-Trump thing or whatever, but now you could see if the U.S. got a hold of him, he may still be there are getting questioned
4: yeah i mean that's that's the thing again whether that's um because he knows that there was something wrong or maybe he knows that there's there's a certain political climate that might assume guilt where there's not i mean who knows i mean um he might just be paranoid about the united states again he has certain ties uh to, to other elements or he might even have seen um, the treatment of Omar Khadr and whether people agree with the ultimate decision that the prime minister made about him, mm. I think a lot of people agree that that you know that he he spent a lot of time in an American prison and he was never charged of anything, um, and, and he was a child soldier and and all of this. Maybe he feels that he wouldn't get justice even if um, he did something wrong in the United States. I mean, I'm not sure. I can't speak to that. Yeah. But you know, he's a Canadian. Maybe he wanted to make sure he would come to Canada. But you know, you are right in saying that. United States is generally considered an ally, um, and I'm sure that you know Canadian and American intelligence agencies often do work together. So it is curious that he would want to totally box one of the two out. I suppose.
1: Uh, considering the case of Omar Khadr, and that separately from the fact that that Boyle was at once married to Omar Khadr's sister, do you think he's looking for cash? Do you think he's looking for money like Omar got?
4: I mean, I'm not sure. I, I, I would, I would. If he is, I mean, I'm. It would be much more indirect. I mean, Omar Carter, again, again, whether people agree with it or not, um, could probably point to certain issues, certain lapses, his his youth, um, the fact that he was brought overseas as a child, uh, he was left in Guantanamo Bay. You could you could make a case um, that you know there are damages there. Um, for, for, for Boyle, I don't see it. I mean, Canada wasn't keeping him overseas. He went abroad on his own. I mean, if he's looking for money in the sense that maybe he wants donations from the public or, or support in that sense, I could, I could maybe see that. Like he wants to start a GoFundMe or something, maybe. Mm. But I mean, I, I don't see him being able to make a case um, in a legal sense that he's, owed anything by the Canadian people or the Canadian taxpayers or the government or what have you. I don't see that.
1: Do you think Canadians view him, due to the lack of information, do you think they view him as a terrorist sympathizer or just a misguided pilgrim?
4: I mean, I'm not sure. I can't speak for, for everybody, but I would say that I think a good chunk of people, um, especially those perhaps already that might, you know, on aggregate be critical of the Trudeau government, uh, from the right especially, would be of the camp that would see him as perhaps a terrorist sympathizer, or, again, maybe not believing his story, saying that you know, he actually wasn't a captive, maybe he was, uh, he was an activist, maybe he was a, a terrorist himself, maybe he uh, worked with them and then wanted to come home, and the only way he could come home was pretending that he actually was a captive, because that you know, mm. rather than being a, a combatant or what have you, that explains why he had kids. And, I mean, none of that may be true or not. I really don't know. But if that's one's narrative, and, again, it's combined with the fact that people thought that Trudeau, you know, um, paid off Omar Khadr. And and now there's pictures of him with Boyle. And, yeah, I, I could see that. Easily being a narrative that people could could kind of craft in their own head.
1: So whatever you thought of the Boyle family or the picture taking with the prime minister or what have you uh, prior to all of this being being announced, that's one thing. How do these charges change things, especially if there's a conviction?
4: Yeah, I mean, then there's going to be a lot of questions raised. If there's if because right now the charges again from a political perspective means that. I mean, no one's going to want to associate him with as as with before. Um, The prime minister certainly probably wouldn't want to have those pictures taken. Um, How he's interviewed in the media, I mean, of course, he probably wouldn't be doing interviews. Uh, His counsel would probably recommend against it, for instance, but um, would be handled differently. I mean, if he's convicted, it does raise a lot of questions. It raises a lot of questions about uh, intelligence processes. It raises a lot of questions about how the PMO uh, operated. Maybe it raises questions about how, law enforcement. If, if it comes out that law enforcement didn't let the PMO know, then why didn't they? Should they? Maybe they do, shouldn't. Maybe we don't need that much um, you know, direct connection between law enforcement and the PMO. All of these questions will come out. But of course, that would have to wait until um, Boyle is convicted of one or, or, or any of these
1: i can totally I can totally understand how the Prime Minister isn't aware of the ongoing duties of the Ottawa Police Department. I mean yeah. obviously yeah. he's got bigger fish to fry, but this is a much bigger fish that they're no, both no. frying, no, no. <laughs> so no, no. I, you know no,
4: you're right yeah no, no, i think that's I think that's a fair point, and I think that's why, especially if it comes down that that these charges are substantiated, you know there are convictions, and again, maybe not all of them, but let's say some of them I, who knows there's there's fifteen I believe mm-hmm. um you know, then there'll there'll be increased questions raised about not only the boils, but also, and maybe even like uh, more meta, the media, how the media covered this story. Does the media have to ask questions about, you know, how it covers these complex stories too? And that could be something, you know, online sources like Canada they they look at how media covers issues, and maybe that's something for them to examine about how the Canadian media kind of crafted a narrative here. Maybe did they do it too quickly Mm. And, and the truth had wasn't able to come out until until the courts and, and law enforcement kind of interceded.
1: This could reshape a lot of things, couldn't it? If it goes I mean, the wrong maybe. if it goes yeah, the wrong maybe, way for yeah. the government,
4: I mean, it could. It could. I mean, I, I think it, it 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 could be a, a politically difficult. It could raise issues with how we deal with future future excuse me future hostage situations. It could raise questions about, um, you know, next time do we. Maybe heed more closely the American intelligence information. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it could it could change a lot. But, uh, certainly, what it will do is it will, um, you know, probably have the PMO question exactly who, who gets to take pictures with the prime minister. Because again, that's that's a very powerful image. And again, especially for a prime minister who whose public image. I mean, even with with Stephen Harper. I mean, if you got taken, you know, he had to be careful about who he associated with, but. Harper was always kind of – he was a little less showy. It was maybe a little less important. But for Trudeau, his public image is the thing he trades on, I think, most directly. So it's very important, and I think that will have an effect. Yeah, because, again, you could see it in the House of Commons. Andrew Scheer, why why is Justin Trudeau taking pictures with a criminal who may or may not be a terrorist? And, and you'll have to answer that question in the question period, and it won't look good. It'll raise a lot of money for the Conservative Party, and it'll activate a lot of people in that way. Uh,
1: do the type of charges that have been filed against Boyle reveal anything? Sexual assault, confinement, use of a noxious substance. D- does this reveal anything?
4: I mean, kind of, I guess. It might, it might reveal that, you know, there's... Abuse of, of, of his family. I, mean, I I really don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't Yeah, because obviously
1: know, we don't know. There's a publication ban, so we obviously don't know anything I mean, about the victims, exactly. right? So, exactly. Yeah. I mean,
4: so, I mean, what I would say is is that it shows that the charges are serious. And I think that's the most important thing.
1: Do you think I only yeah. got a couple seconds left? Do you think Christo will ever know the full story here?
4: Um, maybe one day. Uh, certainly not at least until all this stuff is done in court. And again, if it involves. Uh, children and other vulnerable people, uh, probably for the best, we probably will never know the full story. I think that's probably what's going to happen.
1: Christo Avalis has been with us, Queen's University Labor and Political History Professor. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on
0: AM 900 CHML.